The Blaze Radio Network. On demand. And go for Mike Slater in three, two, one. You're listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio, only on the Blaze Radio Network. Slater's America's the greatest country in the world. Happy Saturday. Thanks for being here. I want to kick off the show today with uh, just sort of some foundational stuff. And then everything else we talk about today pretty much is going to be based back on on this foundation. Um, and it is the the foundation that truth exists. And you say, well, like, why? Well, the reason we have to talk about this, you can't assume anything. Postmodernism, which is the progressive ideology, says that there is no such thing as truth. And everything that they do moving forward, as you'll see, and as you, once you realize this, you see it everywhere. Everything they do moving forward is because there's no, they don't believe there's such thing as truth. Or at least they say there's no such thing as truth. Some people say truth is unknowable, but that, that means there still is a truth. You just can't figure it out, but it's there. This is a step further. Postmodernism says there is no such thing as truth. Now, I can prove that wrong. Real quick, is it clear like this is progressivism? This is the postmodern ideology. This is what's driving everything coming out of college campuses. There is no such thing as truth. Now, I can prove that wrong with one question. If there's no such thing as truth, is that true? It is. Okay, so then there is such thing as truth. It's true that there is no truth. So is, is that true? <laughs> okay, well, if that's true, then there is truth. So the whole thing falls apart right from the jump. But moving past that, um, my argument is that society is terrible if there's no such thing as truth because it's just game on. If there's no such thing as truth, there could be no law, there could be no morals, there could be no values, no right or wrong behavior. Who says murder is wrong? Right? Says who? If there's no such thing as truth, what, what, why, why is murder immoral? Who says stealing is wrong? Why? Why would it be wrong? You know, you want to go back to Charlottesville this whole last week, which is turning into a, a conversation of whether or not we should have freedom of speech in America. Right? We live in a society that says, that is saying today that certain people don't have freedom of speech rights. Now, right now, it's the Nazis who don't, but very soon it's conservatives. And not even very soon, it's, it's also conservatives and just people who disagree with the prevailing progressive opinion. You don't have freedom of speech rights. Just ask all the, the people who want to speak on college campuses, all the conservatives who aren't allowed. So if there is no truth, Right. And a truth, one of the, tr a truth is that people have freedom of speech and that freedom of speech is good. If that doesn't exist then there's no exchange of ideas and there will only, there can only be violence as a result. Anyway, it's, it's very dangerous and, and, a, and a horrible world. If, if we operate as if there's no such thing as truth. Now there will always be truth, whether or not we acknowledge it or not, but the question is, do we acknowledge it? And if we don't, it's a horrible, violent existence. 
But of course there's truth. And I want to prove it three ways here. I want to prove it three ways that there's truth. And we know there's truth. Music, art, oratory. Music, art, oratory. We'll do it real quick here and then we'll go into some more political things. But um, music is a very easy one. This is a TED Talk done a couple of years back by a, name, uh, by a man, Benjamin Zander. Take this part in here. So let's see what's really going on here. We have a B. This is a B. The next note is a C. And the job of the C is to make the B sad. And it does, doesn't it? <laughs> Composers know that. If they want sad music, they just play those two notes. But basically, it's just a B with four sads. Now it goes down to A. And now to G. And then to F. So we have B, A, G, F. And if we have B, A, G, F, what do we expect next? Oh, that might have been a fluke. Let's try it again. Ooh, the Ted Choir. And you notice... You notice nobody is tone deaf. Is that right? Nobody's. You know, every village in Bangladesh and every uh, 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 hamlet in, in, in China, everybody knows. Da, 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 da. Everybody knows. Who's expecting that E? Now, Chopin didn't want mm, to be. There. How good is that, right? Music has truth. What sounds good? I love what he just said right there. Everyone, whether you're in, in a village in Bangladesh or a hamlet in China, everyone knows it's B A G F. E, we all know it. It's just true. It sounds right. Art. Don't get me started on modern art. Um, there's truth to art. There used to be. You know these art events they have um, where you can like get these on Groupon where they have a group of people and you know usually you're drinking wine or whatever and there's an art teacher up there and you all paint the same thing, right? You'll all paint... Uh, a forest scene or something. Uh, I've never been to one of these. My wife went to one. Uh, and I'm, I'm not criticizing them. I'm glad they exist, right? Whatever. But when they're done, you got like 20 amateurs painting trees. And when everyone's done, you all look around and, and you, you, you judge. Right? You judge who's is better. Right? Well, what's that based on? It's based on truth. Everyone knows which of the paintings is better, who did the best job. Everyone knows that. And then if you take the best painting of the amateurs and you compare it with the teacher obviously the teachers is going to be better and if you compare the teacher's painting with michelangelo then we all know whose is going to be better there's truth to it there's truth to art there used to be we have this postmodern garbage i think a couple weeks ago we played um uh, a clip from the artist who in the 60s first put the urinal in, in an art museum a urinal and called it art and he said he is intentionally trying to destroy art just as people have intentionally tried to tear down religion it was, it was a purposeful movement in the postmodern art world to destroy the concept of art because they believe there's no such thing as truth. But of course there's truth to it. Just like B-A-G-F-E, there's truth to that. And in art, there's line, color, shape, space, form, unity, balance, scale, contrast. These are all things that we know are true. But we have to kill the part of our brains that says that is true. Right? We, have to, we have to paralyze the part of our brain that says, oh, that's good and that's not good because oh, you can't judge. Who are you to say? And there's no such thing as truth anyway. Give me a break. Let me give you one more example. Uh, oratory. 
heard a great analysis the other day of Winston Churchill, prime minister of England during World War II, and it was an analysis of his speeches. And in the Battle of Britain speech, we all heard this line where he said, never in the field of human conflict, so war, never in the field of human conflict was so much owed by so many to so few. Never in the field of human conflict was so much owed by so many to so few. Oh, it's perfect. So much meaning freedom. So many as in people, the people of England and America and the whole world to so few, the pilots, the Royal Air Force. Oh, it's so good. Never in the field of human conflict was so much owed by so many to so few. That's such a good line. And the reason that that quote is famous and it's well known still today is because it just sounds right. It's the same thing. It's bomb, 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 bomb. It's just, ooh, yes, that's a... So it's called a tricolone. It has three parts to it, right? This is uh, so much, so many, so few. Boom, boom, boom. Three parts. Caesar, I came, I saw, I conquered. Lincoln at Gettysburg, we cannot dedicate, we cannot consecrate, we cannot hallow. Boom, boom, boom. Lincoln's second inaugural with malice towards none, with charity towards all. There's another one. With firmness in the right. People tend to quote only the first two, with malice towards none, with charity with all, towards all, with firmness in the right. Boom, 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 three. Try cologne. It just sounds good. There's truth to it. Obviously to what he's saying, but also to the, just the form of it. It's a work of art. In the sound of Churchill's words, he knew this. In one of his speeches, he said, we shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. It's so good because those are all short Anglo-Saxon words. Bump, 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 except for one word. Only one word in that part right there is from Latin, is one of the Romance languages. Only one, the word surrender. And it, that word, it, it pierces your brain. It stands out, even if you don't know that, right? Who knows that? Who would, but it, it, he did, right? And he knew that at the end, he's going to give you this, this shot. This pierce in the brain, this pierce in your heart. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. Ooh, just sounds good. It's just like bomb, bomb, B-A-G-F-E. We shall never surrender. Ooh, it's good. So why do I bring all these up? It's taken a long time of human existence to know what works, <laughs> to know what's, what sounds are true to know art that is true, to know the oratory that is true. Right? It takes a long time to figure out, yes, that's right. Now, the good thing is we've also discovered the truth of government, the truth of economy, and the truth of how we treat each other, a moral code. We know the truth, and the truth is a constitutional republic. The truth is capitalism. The truth is the golden rule. That's it. We know those. We know the truth of government. We know the truth of economy. And we know the truth of morality. And if we deny the existence of truth, you get, you get the destruction of all of those things. You see it clearly in the postmodern art world, but the analogy is perfect. You look at the Last Supper and you're like, oh, that is a perfect work of art. And then you look at the crap in a modern art museum and you're like, That's, is, that is awful. Same thing with morality, right? You have the truth of morality and we know what it, what's right. And that's the golden rule and 10 commandments and the sermon on the Mount. You're like, yes, that's right. And then you look at our morality today and you're like, oh, that's awful. <laughs> that's where we are today. We're just like the crap at a modern art museum. And it's all based 
off uh, this movement these last couple of decades that there's no such thing as truth. When of course, of course, like gravity, of course there is. Keep that in mind. Everything that's broken around you, everything that's broken around you is because of the ideology that there's no such thing as truth. Once you know that, things start to, start to make a lot more sense here. I'll give you some more examples. We've got a bunch throughout the rest of the show. one 888 Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. This is Mike Slater on The Blaze Radio Network. Mike Slater. The true truth. We see it everywhere. We see it everywhere. It's whether or not you choose to ignore it, and many people do. In fact, they claim there's no such thing as truth at all. I want to play this clip here from Jason Whitlock. Uh, this is a Twitter video. Uh, well, he's a sports commentator, and uh, he did this on his show, his TV show, and then put it on Twitter. It's called Cyber Humans vs. Humans, and he wrote, The culture war no one is talking about. The culture war that humans are losing. The culture war tearing apart America. I think this is perfect. And a pretty simple way of saying what we've been saying for a long time and, and just described in the last segment there. Here it is. There's a deadly culture war being waged that isn't being discussed on Fox News, MSNBC, or CNN. Cyberhumans versus humans. People whose reality is shaped by the internet versus people whose reality is shaped by the real world. Right now, cyberhumans are crushing humans. It might be the most one-sided war in the history of the world. Cyberhumans live on three planets, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. They use Facebook to promote their delusional lifestyles, they visit Instagram for sex, and they use Twitter to control what all of us think. Twitter is their weapon of war. Cyberhumans control the media and celebrities, America's tastemakers, through Twitter. They bully us into buying into their false sense of reality with Twitter bots and thought police and lynch mobs. Twitter is why the media and celebrities believe police are indiscriminately killing large numbers of black men. Twitter is why Colin Kaepernick believes police brutality is a bigger threat to black men than mass incarceration and poverty. Twitter is why Kaepernick and his supporters think the best way to show that black lives matters is by being publicly angry when a white police officer kills a black man unjustly and silent when a black man kills a black boy unjustly. Twitter is a cesspool of 140-character bigotry. It's the virus spreading racial division in the real world. Cyberhumans spend their lives locked in this virtual world, unable to see the humanity in their classmates, next-door neighbors, and co-workers, unwilling to accept that good people might disagree with them. They filter out flawed human beings and only let like-minded cyberhumans enter their smartphone reality. They avoid connecting, talking, and engaging in the real world in a real way. They duck their heads and stare at their phones. For cyberhumans, it's safer to tweet and text and snap. But is it safer for us, those of us who visit the cyber world but prefer living in the real one? Mm, gosh, that's so good. I just put it on my Twitter, Slater Radio. You can watch that and share that. Gosh, that's awesome. I went to the Phoenix newspaper's website the other day after the Trump rally. And the headline was Trump rally turns ugly. And it was a picture of protesters and police fighting outside. So you have Antifa, right? That's who this is. You have Antifa fighting police and Trump gets blamed for it. 
<laughs> you get blamed for by extension, right? The Trump rally was, was great. The Trump rally was peaceful inside the venue. Thousands of people came together on a nice evening. But it was Antifa outside who, who caused all the trouble. But the headline is Trump rally that turns ugly. Those are the cyber humans, right? Cyber humans were there protesting and getting violent. Cyber humans wrote the headline to get clicks and wrote a story completely misrepresenting reality. And then cyber humans read the news and got outraged by what they read. And then all of that is blamed on you, an actual human, an actual human who is dealing in truth or who desperately wants to. I think the most disturbing thing about these whole last two weeks, I mean, like more than that, but just specifically last two weeks, has been the absence of truth. And the lasting damage of this is going to be an attack of your freedom of speech, which is what I really want to talk about and, and, and touch on throughout the rest of the show. We must, you and I must be defenders of absolute freedom of speech in all circumstances for all people at all times. We must, not for the sake of a political party, but for the sake of our country, we must have freedom of speech. I want to play one last clip here, uh, 1635. This is um, Alan Dershowitz, progressive Harvard Law professor, not a Trump fan, but talking about Antifa uh, and speaking as a real human. <laughs> here it is. And the other important thing is do not glorify the violent people who are now tearing down the statues. These, many of these people, not all of them, many of these people are trying to tear down America. Antifa is a radical, anti-American, anti-free market, uh, communist, socialist, hard, hard left, sensorial organization that tries to stop speakers on campuses from speaking. They use violence. And just because they're opposed to fascism and to some of these monuments shouldn't make them heroes of the liberals. Mm. The, the cover of The Economist the other day has Trump yelling into a, a white blowhorn with two eye slits cut out of it as if it's a Klan hood. The New Yorker has Trump on a boat blowing into the sails, and the sail is a big white sail with two eye slits cut out of it as if it's a Klan hood. And The Guardian has a cartoon with the White House, but the front of the White House has a big triangular uh, front with two eye slits out of it as if it's a Klan hood. The headline of time is hate in America and it's a cartoon of someone giving a Nazi salute entirely made up, entirely made up. This whole thing is made up. It's cyber reality for cyber humans living in their made up cyber world. And when real humans look at these covers, it reinforces a fake reality that does not exist. But this is the important connection. Why must cyber humans portray you as a Nazi and hate in America? Because everyone who disagrees with them has to be evil so that they can justify their retaliation. They can't beat you up in the streets or get you fired from your job or shame you on social media just because you have a slightly different opinion. But if you are pure evil and basically a Nazi, they can. And that's the goal. All this Nazi talk is just laying the groundwork to take away your freedom of speech. Don't let them. Don't let the cyber humans win. Slater Radio on Twitter. We'll talk about uh, Trump's speech about Afghanistan next. Mike Slater, show the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. This is Mike Slater. 
part of the next generation of talk radio on the blaze radio network Mike Slater is on. Thanks for making us part of your Saturday. Let's do a uh, quick rundown of the president's speech the other day about Afghanistan. Uh, I want to start off here with my my big principle when it comes to analyzing Donald Trump, President Trump, with uh, foreign policy issues. I don't pretend for a minute that Donald Trump, the man, has any foreign policy experience. I don't think he claims to. Would right, um, but I just say that to just because he's now president doesn't mean that we should put him on a pedestal. I'm not convinced he could point to Afghanistan on a map, and I, I don't mean I really don't mean that. It, most Americans don't know where Afghanistan is on a map. Most Americans can most Americans can't name our 50 states. They couldn't put our 50 states on a map. So I, I really don't mean that in an insulting way. I'm just being realistic, but I do. Now, this doesn't mean they're infallible, but I do trust the men who Donald Trump has surrounded himself with in this arena. Uh, McMaster and Mattis and Tillerson. I believe these are three scholars, three students of history, three men with great wisdom. Again, not infallible, still human, but um, excellent men. And men of, of good character. And I also trust Trump's decision-making when given information. And now this may sound odd. It depends if you like Trump or don't like Trump, how you're going to interpret what I'm going to say here. But as arrogant as he is, he can, in a way, he can, how do I, as arrogant as he is, he can do something that humble people do. <laughs> and humble people listen to wise counsel and make decisions based off of that counsel. And Trump has always done that. In his business, he's always done that. Um, and, and I believe in, in this arena, he's done that as well, which is interesting, right? Because usually arrogant people are like, no, I'm doing it my way. And I bet he is like that in some ways. But it seems like with foreign policy, he will take the wise counsel, surround himself with smart people, understand his weaknesses, surround himself with smart people, listen to their counsel, and then make a decision from that point forward. This gives me a certain amount of, of hope, a certain amount, not a ton, but a certain amount of hope moving forward with Afghanistan, which is a seemingly you know, impossible and hopeless situation. So that's just sort of my starting point whenever I think of any Trump foreign policy stuff. That being said, uh, I think the noteworthy parts of this speech, there were two. The first was, well, 1A, 1B, and 2. The first, so 1A, calling out Pakistan. Calling them out, which is the country right next to Afghanistan. He said, we recognize the contributions and the sacrifices that Pakistan has made, but... Pakistan has also sheltered the same organizations that try every single day to kill our people. We've been paying Pakistan billions and billions of dollars. At the same time, they're housing the very terrorists that we are fighting. But that will have to change. And that will change immediately. No partnership can survive a country's harboring of militants and terrorists who target U.S. service members and officials. It's time for Pakistan to demonstrate its commitment to civilization. That's such a good line. Demonstrate your commitment to civilization, order, and to peace. Right, so to, to target publicly Pakistan like that is a really big deal. 
Remind me to talk about Pakistan, uh, the Pakistani man that I met yesterday uh, in the next segment if we have time. So that's 1A. 1B is in the very next pa- uh, paragraph, lifting up India. So what Trump did here is pit two rivals against each other. And just, I'm, I'm really, I'm not saying this to, to toot my own horn here. I haven't heard anyone talk about this. Now, maybe I just, I haven't, you know, I'm not watching enough cable news this last week, right? But I haven't heard anyone talk about this aspect of the speech and why this is important and, and the background between these two countries. So let's give a quick history here uh, in case you haven't heard it either. From 1500 to seven, sorry, 1500 BC, 1500 BC to 700, this area, India, Pakistan, was a, uh, a Hindu area, right? This, and, and the area that is today Pakistan was a Hindu area. Around 700, the Muslims came in. And that area uh, saw a couple different Muslim empires come and go. It wasn't a country at this point, right? It wasn't Pakistan at this point. Today, we know this piece of land is Pakistan, but for from 700 until about 1700, it was a Muslim area, Muslim empires. Then the British came in around the 1700s. Quick note here, quick side note. Modern historians today, social justice warriors, look at all history. All history to them begins when, when, when the white people come, <laughs> right? So, so this is when the white man invaded India and Pakistan and all the bad things they did. And they, historians give zero mention of all the, the wars and battles and, and conquests that took place for the 2,000 years prior to Europeans making it to India and Pakistan. But I digress. So skip ahead. So around 1700s, the white man comes. Uh, the British controlled this area from 1820 to 1946. England voted to leave. So now the future of this area was up to the people of this area. Muslims won a ton of seats in the 1946 election in India. It was all one country at this point. So you know, Muslims won a bunch of seats and voted to partition into a new country, which we today call Pakistan. Now, this was not done peacefully. The vote was done peacefully. But the process of, of actually splitting was not peaceful at all. There was an area known as Punjab, P-U-N-J-A-B, Punjab. And it was going to be split, right? So the new country was going to go right in the middle of it. Half of it was going to be Pakistan. Half of it was going to stay in India. Just there, as many as 2 million people were killed. 2 million, just a little perspective here. In World War II, 400,000 Americans were killed. In Punjab, two million. Unbelievable. No Muslims from East Punjab survived, and no Sikhs or Hindus from West Punjab survived. Does that make sense, right? So, so the, the, the Muslims who were in East Punjab, which was going to become India, those Muslims were killed by the Sikhs and Hindus. The Sikhs and Hindus who were in West India excuse me, West Punjab, which was going to become Pakistan, which is going to become a Muslim country, were killed by the Muslims. Everyone's killing everyone, 2 million people. Between those two countries, 6.5 million Muslims moved from India to Pakistan and 4.7 million Hindus and Sikhs moved from Pakistan into India. This This is the largest mass migration in human history. And this was the beginning of what would become ultimately four, so far, four Indo-Pakistan wars, 47, 1947, 65, 71, and 99. 
four wars between these two countries. Oh, by the way, they also both have nuclear weapons. Minor detail. I share all this because these two countries, India and Pakistan, have not just a history, but a present. And it's not good. They are nemesises. I I can't think of two countries next to each other that hate each other more than India and Pakistan. Uh, Maybe, maybe, I said the only things I can think of would be Israel and everyone else and North Korea, South Korea. But even, even that, we talked to a a South North Korean expert the other day who's in South Korea. And he said, the president of South Korea kind of has a soft spot for North Korea. And the number two man in South Korea is from North Korea. So they're pretty, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, Not apologetic. Um, but you know what I mean? Like they're, they're, they're not as anti-North Korea as you would think they would be. But so, I mean, so the rate point is India, Pakistan right up there. And we never think about it, right? Cause it's, so when Trump says publicly, and this has been going on behind the scenes for a while now, Tillerson, Matt, as all these guys have been meeting with these officials in each of these countries, you know, they, they, this was no surprise when Pakistan and Indian officials heard this, but when Trump gets up and says, Hey, Pakistan, get your act together. And stop harboring terrorists. Oh, and by the way, India, you're great. And uh, here's a ton of money and arms and support from us. We're going to need you to get more involved in Afghanistan. Pakistan's going to say, whoa, 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 whoa. We don't want India to get more involved. We don't want India to get closer to America. Uh, we'll, do, we'll help you out more, America. That, that, that's, the, that's the idea. That's the play here. Uh, I think it's bold. I think it's smart. We'll see how it goes. One eight hundred seven six. Excuse me. One eight 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 nine hundred thirty three ninety three. So that's one A and one B. I want to come back with point two of Trump's speech, and that's the rules of engagement. Um, the the India Pakistan. That's more long term vision for what we're going to do in Afghanistan. The rules of engagement is today. We'll break that down next. Mike Slater show the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. Mike Slater. We'll continue in a moment. On the Blaze Radio Network. This is Mike Slater. Slater, Slater. So uh, talking about Trump's speech about Afghanistan. So the first point was India and Pakistan. Very important. That's more long-term. The short-term thing is rules of engagement. He said, I've already lifted restrictions the previous administration placed on our war fighters that prevented the Secretary of Defense and our commanders in the field from fully and swiftly waging battle against the enemy. Micromanagement from Washington, D.C. does not win battles. Uh, they are, eh, this is worth reading. They are one in the field drawing upon the judgment and expertise of wartime commanders and frontline soldiers acting in real time with real authority and with a clear mission to defeat the enemy. These killers need to know they have nowhere to hide and no places beyond the reach of the American might and American arms. Um, retribution will be fast and powerful. So really of all the great military powers in history, perhaps most notably Napoleon, but most of the great military victories come from swift decision-making. 
And the people who make the best decisions are the men who are there in the field on the front lines. And not only the people who make the best decisions, but the people who make the first decisions. They're there on the front lines. Obviously, the people who can best make it. And McMaster, who's the new national security advisor, he knows this as much as anyone. He wrote an article. I think I'm sure we've gone over it before. 10 lessons from the Battle of 73 Easting. That was a battle during the Persian Gulf. It was a tank battle during the Persian Gulf War in Iraq. Uh, a couple of the lessons, I think we have time to go through these. Uh, lead from the front. Shoot first. He said the side that shoots first has a tremendous advantage. He tells a story of a tank that was on the front lines. And the, the sergeant said, hey, I, I got a hot spot out there. I'm not sure what it is. And the staff sergeant responded, put a toe in it. See what it is. Toe's a missile. And he fired, shot, and that was a, it turned out to be a T-72, the tank. Uh, he said, our troops' experience was consistent with Erwin Rommel's observation in his World War I book, Infantry Attacks. Quote, I found again and again in encounter actions, the day goes to the side that is first to plaster its opponents with fire. Shoot first. This is why I said I trust the people around Trump. Uh, we've talked before about uh, two of his rules. One is use standard unit fire and battle drills and then be prepared for misfires and degraded observations, operations. I love that. So do what we train for and then be prepared for it to go to pot and just get the job done. I love, I love that pair of, of lessons there. Follow your instincts and intuition. Fight through the fog of battle. Great lessons here. Take risks to win. Here's the one I wanted to share, though. This is the one relevant to what Trump said about rules engagement. Foster initiative. So McMaster tells the story from, again, the Gulf War of a tank driver who drove through a minefield and avoided all the mines. And he said back over the radio, sir, I think you need to know we just went through a minefield. McMaster says he knew that it would be dangerous to stop right in the middle of the enemy kill zone. Right? Like he knew that he, was, he had orders to stop, but he knew he couldn't. He saw that our tank platoons had a window of opportunity to shock the enemy and take advantage of the first blows that Sergeant Cook had delivered. Right, so he had orders and he's like, oh, like I, I got it, but I got to do this. Because the ultimate goal is to win, and it's better to shock the enemy, right? He gave initiative, uh, McMaster did, when he was in the Persian Gulf. He gave initiative, fostered initiative in the men beneath him. This is true for all great companies, and it's true in the military as well. So when Trump says micromanagement from Washington, D.C. does not win battles, McMaster has been there, right? Imagine if this this, uh, sergeant uh, called... uh, you know, the, the, the guy above him, and then he had to call the guy above him, and then they had to call Mission Control, and then they had to call the White House to get permit. Like, no, micromanagement doesn't win battles. McMaster's been there, and you know Mattis has too. This is why, remember when the Moab was dropped, the mother of all bombs, a couple months back? The White House didn't even know about it. Largest non-nuclear bomb ever dropped in the history of warfare. Uh, the White House didn't even know. And I remember when that happened, and, and someone said, oh... Someone in the, in the Obama White House said, oh, Barack Obama signed off on everything. All the attacks had to get permission from the White House first. Trump says, I trust you guys. I'm fostering initiative. 
I'm empowering you. Get the job done. Do what it takes. We don't have time to go into the last point. Um, but I think he did lay out a plan. A clear definition. Attack our enemies. We're, we're going to kill everyone. We're going to obliterate ISIS. We're going to cr- uh, kill everyone who's our enemy. Obliterate ISIS. Crush Al-Qaeda. Prevent the Taliban from taking over. So, you know, Bush with the whole nation building thing. It's a classic. You can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink, right? And people are like, oh, the Marshall Plan after World War II. Yeah, that worked in Germany because that was a Western country with a culture similar to ours. Afghanistan's very different. The people of Afghanistan, the culture is very different. So it looks like Trump's new strategy is to heck with nation building. Let's just make sure we kill all the bad guys. Mattis, go. Get it done. Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. It's about time, right? You're listening to Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network. And go for Mike Slater in three, two, one. You're listening to Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. Only on the Blaze Radio Network. Slider Crusaders, America's greatest country in the world. Happy Saturday. Thanks for being here. San Diego State College Republicans. What row? Have you seen this, uh, what they did? Uh, We talked to the president on my local show the other day. Uh, This is what they wrote. They wrote a press release here. The College Republicans of San Diego State are deeply saddened by the horrific events that happened earlier today in Barcelona. Our hearts go out to the victims and the families affected. Uh, Attacks of this nature are becoming increasingly common in European countries and other parts of the world. And each time, the Islamic State takes credit for the acts. The acts of violence must not only be stopped, but disavowed by Muslim leaders on our campus and in our community. This This statement is a formal request to the Muslim Student Association of San Diego State University to stick to their mission statement that says the Muslim Student Association is an organization dedicated to creating a sense of community and an inclusive environment for all students on campus. Unfortunately, until radical Islamic terrorism is disavowed by the Muslim Student Association at San Diego State, we cannot move forward in creating an inclusive environment, an inclusive environment for all students on campus. We ask the president of your organization to publicly condemn this morning's acts of radical Islamic terrorism in Spain and those acts of a similar nature. Brandon Jones, president of San Diego State College Republicans. Uh, so we issued this the other day, uh, and everyone's, of course, freaking out. Just some comments on Facebook. This is disgusting. And the administration will be put on notice about this. You should be ashamed of yourselves for, ju- for such a low tin pot strategy at strawmanning an entire religious group to denounce what is already known as extremist ideology. Someone else, it's hard to tell whether you're just trolling Muslim students because you think this type of bullying is fun and edgy or whether you seriously believe your fellow Muslim students might be supporters of terrorism. The former possibly puts you beneath contempt while the latter highlights how embarrassingly ignorant you are. I'm not sure which you'd prefer. Now, why did he do this? Um, it's an effort to, to flip the script. The other day, two, two weeks ago now, what, 300 tiki Nazis have a rally in Charlottesville, and now all conservatives are, are Nazis? 
So this guy's saying, hey, Muslims on campus, we got some other Muslims over here who commit a terrorist attack in Barcelona. Are, are, are you going to denounce it? And if they don't, then, then you're, if you don't, then you're creating an unsafe place on campus. Now, the obvious rebuttal and what many people are saying to the college Republicans is, okay, this is so embarrassing that you would make them, make them do that. You need to denounce uh, white supremacists and Nazis. As if that's a, okay, so, uh, how do I explain this? So when the college Republicans say, hey, Muslims on campus, you need to denounce what happened in Barcelona. People are saying, oh, that's so unfair. That's so ridiculous. What if I asked you to disannounce, the, uh, d- denounce the Nazis? Oh, you mean like you've been doing every day? How many times have we talked about David Duke? Every, every four years, David Duke comes up. Whenever there's a, a Republican running for president, David Duke always comes up and the Republican is always asked to disavow David Duke. And then after the election, he goes away for four more years and then comes back. You have to disavow David Duke. And every day, the Republican nominee for president or, or all Republicans running, do you disavow David Duke? Do you disavow David Duke? Do you disavow David Duke? And everyone's like, who the heck is David Duke? Most people don't even know who David Duke is. Do you disavow? And then after 300 times of being asked, do you disavow David Duke? The Republican says, could you just stop asking me if, you, if I disavow, disavow David Duke? I've done it a million times. I'm not going to do it anymore. <gasps> Donald Trump does not disavow David Duke. <laughs> That's the big headline. Now. It's like, ah, oh, jeez. We're always den- having to denounce Nazis and white supremacists. Every day you make us denounce it. He's just trying to flip the script here. That's all this is. And it's so funny that this is happening right now. You know, people are like, well, you need to disavow white supremacists. You mean like you're making the president do all the time? So, yeah, you do make us disavow. And here's this guy saying, you know, you have to do the same thing. So anyway, if someone says, hey, Slater, you need to disavow Nazis. First of all, okay, done. Disavow. Second, there is not a worldwide Nazi movement and there aren't Nazi countries and there aren't Nazi governments and there aren't weekly Nazi attacks, et cetera, et cetera. And three, no one's committing Nazi attacks or terrorist attacks in the name of conservatism, in the name of the Republican Party. But people are committing terrorist attacks in the name of Islam. But here's my main point here. That's all easy, simple, whatever. Here's the main point. Can I share how this will go down and then how it should go down? First, let me talk about how what will happen. Everyone's going to freak out and panic. Um, people like this student on Facebook. I just sent an email to the San Diego State president about this. I am honestly so disappointed to be sharing a campus with a group that believes this letter is okay. And I suggest everyone who's outraged do the same. So... The president of the university is going to get involved. There's going to be some rally on campus to shut down this group, shut down this college Republicans. And the college president is going to be like, oh, okay, we're going to you know, make sure that we have a more inclusive environment. We're going to take away the funds for the college Republicans. And the Muslim students are not going to be happy. And they're going to do some sit-in in the president's office until they get their way, until they're banned from campus. And then the president's going to come and cave and he's going to ban the college Republicans for the rest of the year or whatever. That's what's going to happen. Something like that. What should go down? Here's what should happen. And if we lived in a sane world and if universities stayed true to their purpose, this is what would happen. The Muslim group would denounce Barcelona and all terrorist attacks that are done in the name of Islam. They should host an event where they invite all of the college Republicans. 
they can find anyone, right? Just have it at a lecture hall and the first couple rows are for all the college Republicans and then the rest of the auditorium is for everyone else. And the Muslim students give a presentation on true Islam or good Islam or their interpretation of Islam. And then they give a presentation on what ISIS believes and how they are different from the terrorists and the terrorists are different from them. And then host a Q&A, have a little debate Q&A where the Republicans can ask the Muslim students questions. Maybe involve some professors of different disciplines to moderate or host and keep order. And then everyone goes back to their dorm room and they play flip cup for ultimate supremacy. I mean, like that, that's how that should happen. Why do it this way? Why do it this way? As opposed to protests, call for bans and boycotts and blah, blah, blah. Have this, do it this way. So that the Muslim Student Association kids will have a better idea of the concerns of the Republicans. And even better understand their biases or ignorances or perspectives or whatever. And then the Republicans will learn more about Islam and and the potential differences between Islam at SDSU and Islam in Saudi Arabia or ISIS or whatever, right? It's just dialogue. It's just communication. Everyone wins. The, The worst part about this and the most troubling and really the reason I bring this up is this instinct of people to call the president to tattle, basically, right? To tattle on the college Republicans. Oh, I don't like, I'm, I'm, I'm emailing the president. Give me a break. I love in, uh, in Matthew, it says, if, if someone sins, you confront them lovingly one-on-one. And if they don't change, then you bring someone else along. You bring one or two people along and you, and you confront them lovingly. And then if they don't listen again, you bring the entire church along and you confront them lovingly, right? And you build up like that. Never once does the Bible say, go tattletale on someone like a little baby. It's like, shut up. I look forward to teaching Jack when he's old enough that if someone does something that upsets you or offends you or bothers you, don't whine about it. I don't, I don't want to hear your whining. No one wants to hear your whining. Take care of it. Use your words to talk to the person who's bothering you. And then you can work your way up the chain of command if you need to. But don't come to me because Charlie took your toy or whatever. Like, I, like, get it, get it, figure it out. No whining. Gosh, I, I have zero patience for whining in, in my 10-month-old. I don't, I don't have any patience for whining from a 22-year-old. But we have raised a generation of weaklings, and that's how that's their first instinct to respond to this. <laughs> Telling the president. By the way, all the people who are saying you need to denounce the Klan college Republicans, they did on Saturday morning, actually. They they released a statement denouncing full throatedly denouncing everything about white supremacy in the Klan before the president even gave his initial statement. So way ahead of you there. One eight 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 nine hundred thirty three ninety three. Does that make sense? Though my biggest concern there is just people's instinct to shut down, as opposed to have dialogue. That's a problem. Mike Slater show the Blaze Radio Network spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network.
You're listening to Mike Slater. Evergreen State College. We've talked a lot about that. You've heard a lot about them. They're the worst of the social justice schools up in Oregon. Uh, this is the school where the, uh, the students took the president and other administrators hostage. And the president asked to go to the bathroom. And the students escorted him to the bathroom and then brought him back. And he was, he was talking, and one student said that he was talking too much with his hands and that that was a microaggression. So he talked the rest of the night with his hands behind his back. And he starts every speech with a paragraph about the oppression that the white man has inflicted on the native peoples who originally owned the land that the university is now on. The place is a total farce. They don't have grades. I don't even know how it's a school. I'm not even kidding. I don't know how they're credentialed. I, I don't, it's not a, it's not a real, it's totally worthless play. This is where the big controversy was because the students wanted to have a day without white people. And Brett Weinstein, one of the professors said, uh, I don't, I don't know if it's a good idea to kick all the white people off campus. That seems, seems not helpful. Anyway, they have a, a new mandatory workshop for all incoming freshmen called conversing across significant differences at the Evergreen State College. Conversing across significant differences. So basically, talking to people. How to talk to people. How to talk with other humans at Evergreen State College. <laughs> so to go back to San Diego State, just a little humility in all the students, right? And, and a little humility even from the Muslim Student Association. And they will respond wisely to that conservative, the Republican group. They can respond wisely, but I have a feeling they will not. And it's just a, a, another example of how far we've fallen. In a hundred years, we've gone from teaching Latin and Greek in high schools to teaching remedial English in college. And now in college, we're teaching remedial how to talk to people with different opinions. Why? Well, to go back to the very first segment, there's no such thing as truth. So of course we've destroyed the Bible and the Bible is all about humility and how to talk to people and how to put yourself second. So we, we destroy that morality. We destroy, destroy that value system. We destroy all those virtues in life, like how to listen, right? Be quick to, um, be, be quick to listen, slow to hear, slow to talk, slow to anger. James 1.18, I think. Quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger, right? That's a biblical truth. And if we just followed that, if these students followed that, then it would be fine. But instead, they're going to have the, they have to have this seminar, and they're not going to include any biblical truth in it whatsoever. But they wonder why they even need to do that in the first place, because there's no such thing as truth in our society. All right, I just got a minute here. I want to. Um, oh, we got so much more to do. Um, I want to say one quick thing about the statues. Oh, tomorrow I'm going to go to Stone Mountain. I'm in Atlanta right now. So I'm going to Stone Mountain tomorrow. Pretty fired up about them. Because I'm only fired up because I don't think it'll be there for much longer. And then next time we're in uh, Tennessee, I got to go to the Dixie Stampede at uh, Dollywood because I don't think that's going to survive much longer either. Um, we had a guest on my local show on Monday who um, wrote a book on Robert E. Lee. Unbelievable. Uh, let me let me take a um, or during the break here I'll put it up on our Facebook page or excuse me on our um, Twitter I'll put the link to this interview it was about Robert E Lee it was phenomenal unbelievable insight did you know that Robert E Lee 
was endorsed in 1868. So this is the first election after the Civil War. He was endorsed to become president by the largest newspaper in the North. This is how respected and revered of a man he was. That three years after the Civil War, the largest newspaper in the North endorsed Robert E. Lee to be president. This was 1868, three years after the war, they had more respect for Robert E. Lee than, than we do today, right? Like, amazing. Anyway, um, some other insight in that interview as well. But I did get this email from Sterling, or I got a note on our Facebook page, Sterling. Um, and I, I, well, let me just read it. Why is it that me as a black man is asked to only see the good side of these Confederate heroes? And not that they owned slaves, sold, gifted, raped, fathered children of them. This push to preserve history is false on both sides. The right is calling the left intolerant and trying to erase history. But if the history is made up or whitewashed, is that history? And the left is saying anyone supporting the Confederate side is a racist. I don't agree with that. But until all the history, good and bad, is out, how can we expect anything different from now? And he goes on and talks about all the bad things that Robert E. Lee did. And he says, as a black American, you're asking me to be in an impossible position to celebrate this man. Um, yeah, that's, I get it. That, that's, that, I think that's a good point. This is why history is really tough, but it's also why history is so exciting. But Sterling makes a good point. Um, so there was a, a movement in the, uh, historian world to this is in the uh, 18 early 1900s to lionize and deify the greats right so to praise and turn into godlike figures the greats of our past and to lift them up as if they were demigods on the earth and to write excuse me to write about how wonderful and perfect they all were in every single way right so we're going to take george washington we're going to lift him up as the greatest person ever to walk the face of the planet but that's not true like they can't they can't they're humans right sure exceptional in many ways let's just let's just take our founding fathers all of our founding fathers exceptional in many ways but they were still human and they were fallen humans who sinned and who were hypocritical and broken and flawed. But the history movement at that time was to, to only look at the good sides. So then history writers took the exact opposite approach. The pendulum swung the other way ent- entirely. And you got people like, like a Sterling maybe who looked at that uh, biography of Thomas Jefferson that was all about the good. And they said, well, wait a second. And then they wrote all these biographies of these, these greats that, that and they villainized them. Right? They, they weren't just hypocrites. They were only hypocrites. Right? Thomas Jefferson, maybe in the first history, was uh, the man who wrote the Declaration of Independence. Oh, he's an amazing man. And then these other histories were written. Thomas Jefferson was only a slave-owning hypocrite. And you're like, well, that's, he wasn't only. Right? I mean, right? so, and, and, and all the greats, they were evil men and killed the Indians and hated the blacks and, and blah, 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 blah. Well, that's not right. Gosh, it wouldn't be fair if anyone characterized you like that or me like that or only by only our sins. And it's defensiveness that makes the pendulum swing like that. It's the defensiveness of identity politics. Right? And we go back and forth. I think today, can we be wise enough to look at good and bad? 
and to apply as much context and as much understanding and as much humility as possible to the men we're, we're, we're looking at. Why can't we do that? Aren't we mature enough to do that and to judge accordingly? Again, history is complex, but that's what makes it so interesting and that's what makes it so important. I'm going to put a link to that interview with the Robert E. Lee biographer up on our Twitter right now. Please listen to it. It's phenomenal. It's, it's probably the best historian interview uh, I've ever been a part of. Best interview of a historian. Really, really. And it's not just because of his awesome accent. Uh, just really good stuff. Um, Slater Radio on Twitter. I'll put that up there right now. Slater Radio on Twitter. one 888 Mike Slater Show on the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. is Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio on the Blaze Radio Network. phone call on my local show uh by the way shout out to uh wesley here who said there are no absolutes i'm absolutely sure of it progressive logic there um i got a phone call the other day because i said oh that's right i said uh, i mentioned the golden rule on my local show and i said uh matthew seven twelve, the golden rule uh, jesus said I do unto others as you want them to do to you. And someone called up super honest, just genuinely curious. He wasn't looking for a fight. He wasn't looking to argue. Really curious. And he's like, Slater, listen, I'm not a religious person. And I, I agree with you on, on everything you say, right? And I agree with you on, on morals and values and standards and all that. Uh, but when you use, when you quote scripture or when you talk about Jesus or the Bible do you think you're excluding a lot of people from your point? Right? You're trying to make a point here and then you quote scripture and it just, uh, it just turns a lot of people off who might not be religious like me. And I was like, oh, that's such a good question. And I loved his humility in it, right? He wasn't like, you Bible-thumping bigot. He, he was like, oh, you know, I just don't, oh, I don't. Really, really good. So um, I want to answer that question here. And he said, he's, he asked, why do you do that? Or how do you handle this? Or what do you think of that? So I try to balance this. How do I, how do I start here? Uh, so a right, little insight into how I do this. I want everyone to hear and to be comfortable accepting the message of truth. So in this case, the golden rule. Now, ev nearly everyone agrees with the golden rule. Right, if I say the golden rule, every single person listening now is like, oh, yeah, yeah, great. But when I say, you know, Jesus said in Matthew 7, 12, whoa, 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 whoa. Suddenly it's weird religion, Bible, Jesus-y stuff. And people aren't as down with that. 
So I try to mix it up. Sometimes I will just mention the truth, the golden rule. And sometimes I'll mention the source of the truth, God. And I do this not to preach to those who don't believe in God, but to encourage those who do. Does that difference make sense? I'm not saying you're a bad person or you're evil or I hate you if you don't believe that this is from God. That's not my point is not to preach. It's to encourage those who do believe in God so that hopefully they or you are not afraid to say God or Jesus or quote scripture out loud in public as well. Does that make sense? And the reason I do this is because I distinctly remember a moment when I experienced the, the power of the influence of radio. And it's when it was about six years ago, I was studying the Bible for the first time and I was listening to someone on the radio mock God, right? the, the whole flying spaghetti monster thing or whatever. And it really made me question, it made me go, oh man, like, is this goofy? Is this a, is this spaghetti monster? Like, uh, is this all made up? Like this influential person on the radio says it is. And I, I, I admire him. So he, uh, like, I don't. Maybe it is goofy. Maybe it's not. A... Now, fortunately, that moment inspired me to learn more. And then I came to the conclusion that it is very, very real. But uh, I said, oh, geez, I better use this influence for good. And, and not to try and convert people, but to speak to people who are Christian to encourage them in, in some small way. So that's sort of how I do. So sometimes I'll, I'll just say golden rule. Sometimes I'll say Matthew 7, 12. So my advice, though, to Christians, when you're talking to people who maybe aren't religious, just speak the truth and then sprinkle in some Bible stuff here and there. And then hopefully one day the person will be like, wow, that's I didn't I didn't even know that was in the Bible. I'm like, yeah, it's there. Actually, everything you need to know is, in, is there. I was I was listening to a sermon the other day and it, it always amazes me what's in the Bible. It's like, oh, my gosh, how is that in there? Are you kidding me? That's in there. It's unbelievable. Uh I was listening to a sermon the other day about Proverbs 26. Proverbs 26, it's about a lot of things, but it's about lazy people and how a sluggard, how a lazy person turns in his bed like a door turns on its hinges, right? Just rolling over back and forth, back and forth, just lazy. It's just, it can't get comfortable, right? Just back and forth, back and forth. A sluggard, a lazy person puts his food, uh, his spoon in his food, but it's too, it's too lazy to bring it to his mouth. <laughs> Uh, a lazy person is wiser in his own eyes than seven people uh, who answer discreetly, right? It'd be one thing if the lazy person was like, oh, you know, I'm just so unfulfilled. I have this illusion of success, but I'm never going to achieve it because I just, I just, I'm just super lazy. And I imagine these great things for myself, but I'm never going to get it because I'm just hinged here on my bed instead of outside doing things important. And I really wish I could be more productive and bring more value to people and serve other people, but I can't, I'm just so lazy. No, no, no. <laughs> that's not how it works lazy people be like ah, i'm awesome i'm so smart everyone else is the worst and, and the reason why i don't have more and the why i don't you know is because other people it's everyone else's fault my favorite line from proverbs 26 is, is a sluggard says there's a lion in the road there's a lion roaming the streets and that's his excuse right so it's oh, geez, i can't i can't go outside and do anything there's a lion in the streets <laughs> so and you know lazy people in your life and we've all been there i've been there right when i'm lazy i make up the dumbest excuses as to why i can't do this thing ah oh, there's a lion there's a lion in the streets like i sorry mom couldn't <laughs> i couldn't do that there's a lion and lion in the street 
I think different Proverbs 20, I think those too lazy to plow in the right season will have no food at the harvest. I love that. So the, the lazy person doesn't plant seeds, but then it's harvest time and he goes outside to see if anything grew anyway. <laughs> I said, I wonder if anything grew with the seeds I didn't plant. This stuff was written 900 BC. Could not be more relevant to all of us today. And, and I think that's pretty cool. There's truth in that book. And it's radical. It's radical. Just because just I mentioned the golden rule. The golden rule. Nearly every world religion has a variation of the golden rule. And the earliest we can trace it back is in ancient Egypt, 2000 BC. And it was written, um, those which, no, the, that which you hate to be done to you, do not do to another, right? So it's eight, like eight, 2000 BC in Egypt, that which you hate to be done to you, do not do to another. Now, the thing is with, with all the other religions, who have that sentiment, the golden rule sentiment, they're either in the negative or the passive. So like that ancient Egypt, it's, it's don't do bad things to people because you don't want people to do bad things to you. Right. Or it's passive. It's, it's wish upon others, what you wish for yourself. Kind of a more passive thing. Jesus said, do good to others as you wish others do good to you. Right? It's, it's a positive. It's, it's not just don't do bad things to people or wish good things. It's go do good things. And then, of course, who is your neighbor? Who are these others? Everyone, even your enemy. Oh, my gosh, it's revolutionary. It's extreme. It's radical. It's the kind of stuff that gets you nailed to a cross. It's radical, radical stuff. So I recommend... Uh, saying it all out loud one 93 Mike Slater so the blaze radio network spread the word you're listening to Mike Slater on the blaze radio network Slater. Slater, I got a quote here from Abraham Lincoln. Uh, probably not a quote from Lincoln, but we'll roll with it. It's attributed to Lincoln. Uh, he said, most folks are about as happy as they make up their minds to be. Most folks are about as happy as they make up their minds to be. I think there's a lot of that going on right now. All this hysteria everywhere. So like, what's going on in this, in our country? <laughs> why, is, why, why is everything just, what the heck is happening? Uh, I think there's uh, Selma envy and outrage addiction. Last week, we talked a lot about outrage addiction. It's been a while since we've talked about Selma addiction. Let me give you the, the very quick of that. So millennials grew up being taught about the saintly figures of the civil rights era who fought back the racists. And these millennial kids are now all grown up. And they looked, they're looking for their own Selma. 
and millennials found it in the gay marriage movement. There's a lot of injustices around the world and in our country, but they all required work and sacrifice and money. But gay marriage was great. It was a great cause to latch onto because it required no moral consistency, no financial sacrifice, and no effort. Just send out a hashtag or two or change your Facebook profile picture to a rainbow flag and you're a hero. And it was Hans Fien who, who came up with this. He said, from the days of our youth, my generation hungered for a cause that could make us as righteous as the saints who marched on Selma. And we found that cause. We've sunk our teeth into that righteousness. And at that point, we couldn't care less if it were real. <laughs> that was the gay marriage. But now that the gay marriage is passed, right? Now it's the transgender stuff and tearing down statues or whatever. It's Selma envy. We just want to be significant. So many millennials are just desperate to be as, as good as the civil rights heroes that we learned so much about. And it doesn't matter if the causes we fight are real or not. Whatever makes us feel good. And we talked, so that's Selma Envy. And we talked about outrage addiction last week. I think there's a third aspect here. I think people take pleasure in pain. Do you know anyone like this? Do you know people who, who are just complain a lot? Now, if that's, if, if that's, like, if you, if you are actually in pain and, and you talk about it, I'm not saying your pain isn't real. I'm not saying it's not real. But you know the person who just always has to talk about it. Why do they always talk about it? I think in a way, and this is true for a lot of people, it makes them feel superior to everyone else. Theodore Dalrymple, one of my favorite writers, he tells the story of how he recently got some gout on his foot. And his big red toe, it was, it was red and swollen and tender and painful and he could barely walk, he couldn't put his shoes on. And this is what he said about it. He said, strangely enough, when I realized what it was, I felt a certain pride. I wanted my condition to worsen so that I could boast of it to others. Real quick, let me tell you about Theodore Dalrymple. He's a psychologist, a psychiatrist uh, at, the, uh, at some prisons and the poorest hospitals in England. So he knows himself. He knows what's happening when he writes this. He says, I wanted my condition to worsen so that I could boast of it to others. I managed to turn my discomfort into the occasion of one of the deadly sins, pride. I was scheduled to give a talk, and I did so despite my gout. And without, I think, conveying to my audience the extent or intensity of my discomfort, what courage, what fortitude. <laughs> right? He's, he's in pain, but he soldiered on. He just wanted people to praise. Look, oh, I'm in pain, everyone, but I'm still here. Oh, aren't I great? And he talked about how he took medicine and the pain went away and ultimately it all went away. And he talked about how no one in history has ever had that luxury like we have today. Uh, and he says it went away. He says, quote, when it did, I was glad to have had it. Never had I appreciated the joy of a painless big toe before whose existence I'd always taken for granted. Now painlessness in my big toe seemed like a great luxury, an enormous privilege. I was grateful for the pain. Now I'll forget. The Does that make sense? Right. Have you, have you today? Have you thought about your big toe? Were you grateful at all today that your big toe was not in pain? I did not. I haven't thought about my big toe in a long time. Right. But for Theodore Dalrymple, when it was just, you know, in intense pain, now that it's not, oh, thank you. I'm so grateful for, a, for painlessness in my big toe. He says, but I will forget the pain within a week and I will take my painless toe for granted again. 
But still, the episode illustrates the point that suffering is necessary for the full appreciation of life. Without some experience of it, we could hardly be aware that we were enjoying anything, which is also a biblical truth. But why do I bring this up? I bring this up because I think a lot of the Antifa protesters, um, they're an extreme version of it. I think it's just a lot of progressives in general. I think a lot of people take pleasure in pain. Let me just focus on Antifa just because that's like the thing now. There's leaders of the movement and they are communist thugs who are truly trying to usher in a movement. And then there's just people who like to wear black and put on masks and break things. And they think they're cool and they take the pleasure in the pain and they live a life of such luxury, such unparalleled luxury. No Antifa person is poor. They're some of the richest, wealthiest, most privileged people in human history. What are they whining about? They want to be in pain. They're as happy as they decided to be. As Lincoln said, right? They're, they're as happy as they decided to be. They want to be oppressed, so they make up oppression. They want to be imprisoned, so they do something that gets them arrested. They want to be beat by cops, so they throw things at cops. They want to get in a fight with a Nazi because then I'll, I'm significant. I'm a hero. So they drive across the country to punch a Nazi in the face. Oh, you're so wonderful. They love the pain because I think a lot of them are looking for something real. And it's sad, actually, these, these Antifa people, you'd think they'd be grateful. And just a lot of people, just people who aren't grateful at all. You think they would be, but if you've grown up being told how oppressed you are, and you throw in some Elva, El, Selma envy and some outrage addiction, and just people deciding to be miserable and be in pain when you're, you shouldn't, you're not. <laughs> not in pain. This is not something we should be encouraging as a society. Coming up next, a email exchange between a parent and his principal. You will then his kid's principal. You will not believe this. No. You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. And go for Mike Slater in three. Two, one. You're listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio, only on the Blaze Radio Network. Slater, America's greatest country in the world. Thanks for being here. I have two education-related stories. We're going to go college and then down to high school. I'm going to share the high school one next. Speechless. It's, it's, it's proof of everything we've been saying for a long time, and it's right there in front of you and i i oh i just we're gonna do that one next but let me start with this one first this is from madeline kearns she's a rising sophomore at nyu she's from england from glasgow and was really excited to come to america for university and she got here last year to to go to college and it turned out to be ridiculous (laughs) uh and she said she knew it was going to be ridiculous when on the first week the welcome week there were badges that you could wear of your preferred gender pronoun. He, she, they, or Z. And she says, the student in front of me, an Australian, found this hilarious. Last time I checked, I was a girl. Her joke was met with stony silence. Later, I realized why. Expressing bewilderment at the obsession with pronouns might count as a microaggression. Next stop, transphobia! It was soon obvious to my fellow students that I was not quite with the program. 
In a class discussion early in my first semester, I made the mistake of mentioning that I believed in objective standards in art. This is what we talked about in the very first segment of the show. I believed in objective standards of art. Some art is great, some isn't, I said. Not all artists are equally talented. This was deemed an undemocratic opinion, and I was given a nickname, the cultural fascist. <laughs> I tried to take it affectionately. Could you imagine we live in a society where if you say, oh, that's, that's good, that art is good, and that art there, that's not good. <gasps> You're a cultural fascist. We were just talking about the, the, you know, you go to these art classes. It's not even an art class. Like it's like an art evening and you got the teacher up there teaching everyone to paint a painting of the ocean. And then, you know, 20 people and you're drinking wine when you're doing it or whatever. And then when you're done, everyone looks at everyone's painting and and everyone judges. They all compare who's the best. Everyone knows that. But we have to kill the part of our brain that recognizes truth. Gosh, it is so sick. Um, now, arts and arts, and we mentioned, made this point earlier, the first segment, art is an obvious example of that, right? Like, here's good art, here's, here's The Last Supper, and here is some piece of crap at the Modern Art Museum. One's good, one's not. We see the, the obviousness of, oh, that's awful. But the same destruction is taking place with morals and values in our society. And it's just not as obvious because you can't see it, right? It's not like, oh, that's a painting, and that's a piece of junk, Uh but it's the same destruction, right? Where a true, more a morally true culture is, oh, that's great! Look at that! That's 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 the, that's the you know uh, uh, Sistine Chapel. But then you know the, the culture that we have today and our morals and values, like, oh, that's a pile of, of feces, right? Like, like that's total garbage. The same analogy. Anyway, during uh, class discussions, I learned to discreetly scan my classmates' faces for signs that they might be fellow free thinkers. A slight head tilt at the mention of Islamophobia, a gentle questioning of what exactly is meant by toxic masculinity. I was thrilled to see a scribbled note, this is utter blank, on someone's copy of one of the reading requirements, Maggie Nelson's The Argonauts, an introduction to queen th- queer theory. Oh, by the way, did you see this tweet? Uh, let me pull it up here. Uh, okay, this is real life. I should share this. I should say this for the next segment, but let me do it real quick. This is a poster, uh, a flyer on a bulletin board for the elementary teachers uh, union uh, of Ontario. And there's an inclusiveness training seminar coming up. And at the top in big bold letters, it says L G G B D T T T I Q Q A A P P inclusiveness training. Like, like this is parody. Remember, remember it was LGBT and then it was LGBTQ and then it's LGBTQ plus. And it's like, it's like, well, what can this? And now it's LGGBDTTTIQQAAPP, lesbian, gay, genderqueer, bisexual, demisexual, transgender, transsexual, two-spirit, intersex, queer, questioning, asexual, allies, pansexual, polyamorous. Like, what the heck are you talking about? But anyway, Maggie Nelson's The Argonauts, an introduction to queer theory. In this way, I found the members of my secret nonconformist book club. And she says once a week, she and a group of classmates meet off campus to discuss campus censored ideas. And she says it's all types of people. There's a Catholic woman, a black conservative, a Protestant libertarian. It's all these different types of people. And they've made their own unsafe space. How sad is it that university students feel the need to start their own book club? 
to discuss ideas that aren't allowed to be discussed on the college campus. It seemed to the members of my book club that academia is losing its way. It's riddled with paradox, safe spaces which are dangerously insular. The idea of no absolutes as an absolute. Aggressive intolerance for anything perceived as intolerant. And censorship of ideas deemed too offensive for expression. It's a form of totalitarianism. I could go on, but I want to leave enough uh, time for our our next segment, which is really important. But I know this, a lot of people are like, ah, Slater, okay, I get it. Like, this is just on college campuses, though. Get over it. College campuses today, everywhere tomorrow. Actually, everywhere today. (laughs) But more and more places tomorrow. The ACLU, did you hear this story? ACLU, every once in a while, uh, well, I should say, I should put it like this. One of their pillars, one of their strongest pillars of truth is they defend freedom of speech. This is the hallmark of ACLU. Now, a lot of time they, they take on these lefty progressive causes as well, but throughout it, freedom of speech has always been one of their great standards. They actually fought to allow the white supremacists to meet in Charlottesville a couple of days before the rally. Uh, I forget exactly how they were involved. I think they threatened to sue Charlottesville if Charlottesville did not let the white supremacists meet. But anyway, they were defending freedom of speech. So the other day, they posted a picture on their Twitter of a little girl, maybe like one or two years old, and she was wearing an ACLU shirt that says free speech on the front of it. And she's holding an American flag in one hand and a a My Little Pony doll in the other. Cute little blonde girl. And the caption said, this is the future that ACLU members want. And some people responded with their fake Twitter outrage. One person posted a picture of a baby with a Hitler mustache and Nazi uniforms. Someone wrote, a white kid with a flag? That's the future you want? And then you can be like, oh, you know, it's like, that's just a few people on Twitter. What's the big deal? But it was enough for the ACLU to delete the tweet and respond with, when your Twitter followers keep you in check and remind you that white supremacy is everywhere. So white kid with American flag is white supremacy. They remind you that it's everywhere. Do you see how the silencing works? People are, oh, I so desperately don't want to offend anyone. And when someone says something and and, and you disagree with it, then, you just, oh, you're a Nazi. You're a white supremacist. And this is, this is strong enough of a force that even the ACLU backs down. White supremacy is everywhere. <laughs> All right. This is one of the worst, exa- worst examples of, 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 uh, of public education fighting against parents that I've ever seen in my entire life. I'm going to share the story next. Mike Slater, show the blaze radio network. Spread the word. Mike Slater. On the Blaze Radio Network. Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. You may have heard there's a school in Sacramento, a kindergarten teacher who had the class sit around for story time and she read two pro-transgender books 
And then a little boy in the class went into the bathroom and came out wearing a dress. So this teacher, now I don't know if she was working with the parents of that student, of that kid, kindergarten, four and five-year-olds. But without telling any other parents this was happening, this teacher prepared this kid's gender reveal, gender transformation to the class. No other parents were notified until the kids went home. And many of them were terrified, scared, thinking that they could just turn into a boy or turn into a girl all of a sudden. Or confused that they, they thought they could pick their gender or change their gender or whatever. It's insane that no parents were told about this. And the school is doubling down saying that they don't need to inform parents. Because this is not a part of the sex ed curriculum. Right? If it's sex ed curriculum, you need to notify the parents. But this is the normal gender inclusion discussions in a classroom. And that doesn't require any parental consent. And they're doubling down on that. That was in Sacramento. I want to share an email chain here between a parent in Washington, D.C. whose uh, daughter goes to a public school. I can't read the whole back and forth between the dad and the principal because these emails are pretty long. His emails are. But please trust me when I say that the emails that this parent wrote and crafted were as kind and well-written as humanly possible. There wasn't any aggression or snark or anything in these emails at all. He says, last week, and I decided to talk to my daughter about the topic of people who identify as transgender. This is, again, the dad to the principal. Shortly after starting this conversation, however, I learned that their teacher had already talked to our daughter and her classmates about it. This involved her reading a book called I Am Jazz, the same book that that the, the teacher wrote, read in Sacramento. And conducting a classroom discussion on the topic. I am Jazz is as pro transgender. It's it's about a little boy who thinks he's a, he's a girl and becomes a girl. Like it's, it's as pro transgender as you can get. So then he goes on and he talks about how wonderful the teacher is and how wonder and happy they are that that her daughter is has this person as a teacher and the school's great and and she, he loves everything. I want to read the most strongly worded paragraph in the whole thing. He says, the sad thing is that I wouldn't have ever known that it happened if I had not decided to have this conversation that, that quite frankly, I thought might be a little too mature for my daughter's age. But we can't unspill the milk, so I'm asking you to do the following to make things right. One, notify all parents about what happened so that they can have a chance to discuss this with their children. Two, apologize to us all for exploring this topic with our kids without seeking our permission. Three, inform all parents of any other instances in which such a discussion happened or any comments were made regarding gender identity, marital norms, and sexuality. And four, let us know what remedial measures the school will take to ensure that this will not happen again. It is not my intent to discourage the teacher at all. Again, we have otherwise been so pleased with her work with our daughter this year, but I just can't overlook this breach of trust. And I think our parents also have a right to know it happened so they can address it at home as necessary. Thank you for your attention to this matter. It is as kind and well, that is the most, that's the most harshly worded part of the entire email, that part right there. So he wrote that, never heard back from the principal. So then he wrote another email and said, uh, whatever the principal's name is, hey, could you meet with me and could we find a time that my wife and I could come and, and meet with you sometime in the next two weeks just to talk about this? And the principal responded, oh, I'm sorry, I should say this. In the first email, the dad wrote, there was something in there about, 
I remember we, he goes, you know, I remember we talked about this, uh, you know, a while back about how to, you know, if anything like this ever is talked about in school that you, you said that you would let me know beforehand. And she says, I do not recall. This is the entire email she sent. I do not recall a conversation about how we would handle conversations about transgender issues, but I can't imagine agreeing either to censure such material or inform you in advance. I'm sorry if the teacher or I led you to believe such a request would be honored. The book used is one that is a respected text in honoring the diversity of our children. Bull. That is not about diversity. It is purely about transgenderism. We would not request, not request that these themes require permission or clearance from families. Quite the contrary, families have asked that we embrace, excuse me, enhance our curriculum to be more inclusive of all different groups of our children and family, that, uh, of all the different groups our children and family represents. And we feel that this book achieves this purpose. I stand by the teacher's use of the book in, in the class, her decision to share the text, and the importance of these texts in the elementary classroom. They're kindergartners. So the dad writes back and asks again if he and his wife can meet in person. And the principal says, I'm not available until the school year begins as we are fervishly working to train teachers, prepare the building, and open the school. So the dad writes back and says, okay, fine. So you're not going to meet with me, I get it. But let's just confirm that you know what I'm saying. Okay, like I, I want to, if, if we're not going to meet in person here, which I would love to do, um, and we're going to have to do this over email. Okay, but just, I want to be very clear so we're on the same page moving forward here. And he says, quote, my wife and I would like our children to be exempt from any classroom discussions or instruction relating to the topics of gender identity marital norms or sexuality we would also like to be informed before any such discussions take place in the classroom i would like to know if the school will honor that request thanks in advance for letting us know we know that these are sensitive topics that require great care which is why we want to be the first ones to talk to our children about it do you believe that that is a difficult unreasonable request. We want our kids to be exempt from any classroom discussion on gender identity, marital norms, and sexuality. I want us to be informed before these topics take place in the classroom because these are sensitive topics that require great care. And I'm just asking that we, the parents, are the first people to talk to our kids about this. And do you believe that's unreasonable? The principal did not respond. Seven days later, The dad wrote back again, and the teacher finally responded, thank you for understanding that this is an extremely busy time. I will not exempt any child from classroom discussions or instruction related to the topics of gender identity and, quote, marital norms. She put scare quote on marital norms, which is great, right? When he wrote marital norms, he just said gender identity, marital norms, and sexuality. She responded with, I will not, I will not exempt any kids on topics related to gender identity and quote marital norms as if marital norms is like a like a uh, like a thing that doesn't even exist right like your marital norms as it relates to formal instruction regarding sexuality and sexual reproduction i will ask for your permission before these concepts are introduced in the fourth grade she's referring to the formal sex ed so sex ed it's clearly defined in the state law that you need parental permission a school needs parental permission before they they have sex ed conversations okay that's in the law 
but gender identity does not fall into that category for whatever reason. So it's just totally, completely game on. And not only is that happening in kindergarten, but the principal said, I will not tell you about it. I will not exempt your kids from it. And I will not inform you that we're doing it. Unbelievable. The parents pulled their kids from the school. Like the, 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 the boldness of that. I will not exempt any child from classroom discussions. I will, I refuse. Wow. Now keep this all in mind, unless these parents or if these parents did not decide to bring this topic up with their daughter in the first place, which was, you know, a difficult conversation. I'm sure the mom and dad were like, Oh, like this is a thing that's happening. How do we talk about it? What do we do? Should we? Okay, we should. All right, let's figure out how we're going to talk about this with my daughter, with our daughter. Okay, okay. And they build up their courage and they go and they have a conversation. And then the daughter's like, oh, we already talked about this at school. What? Okay, now if they didn't do that, then they would have never known that this was brought up. So who knows what else is brought up? And who knows where else this is happening? So there are two stories here. We have one in... Sacramento, California, and this is out of D.C. So the two West Coast, East Coast, I guarantee you it's also everywhere else in between. Please find out what's happening in your kid's school. And it is not, it is not beyond a reasonable stance to say, hey, uh, principal teacher, can you let me know before you have this conversation so I can talk to my kids about it first? But this school, and I fear many schools, refuse to involve parents in this process that is scary one eight 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 nine hundred thirty three ninety three i got one more example of uh of this kind of thing in our culture with the new york times editorial got that next mike slater show the blaze radio network spread the word this is mike slater part of the next generation of talk radio on the blaze radio network the next generation of talk radio this is mike slater got an example of how sick this all is how far off we are um this is a headline in the new york times op-ed want teenage boys to read so the whole point here is that uh, we got there's a gender reading gap girls like to read boys don't so here's some advice want teenage boys to read easy give them books about sex so this author says that what got him reading from a young age was reading Mylan Kundera's The Unbearable Lightness of Being, which includes all the juicy details of our hero's voluminous sex life. Oscar Huelo's The Mambo King's Play Songs of Love is a passionate immigration story, recalling the triumphs and scrapes of a Cuban musician making his way in America and surely contains more sex per page than any other Pulitzer Prize winning novel. So he says, if you want teenage boys to read more, give them more books about sex. What the heck is wrong with that guy? How stupid, how absurd. 
couple things. When this author was young, the only place boys saw sex was maybe a playboy they found at their friend's dad's house, right? Things are different. Kids today are soaked in a sex-obsessed culture. It's everywhere, nonstop, everywhere. The average age that that a kid sees porn online is 10. No boy is going to scour the pages of the Mambo Kings play Songs of Love to find a few dirty words when a Google search online can find them the dirtiest porn they've never imagined their entire lives. Kids don't need more. They don't, like, I don't think kids today are, are looking, uh, thumbing through uh, uh, National Geographic to find boobs when, because they have the internet now. And it's like, <laughs> all, kids don't need more illusion, uh, 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 images and illusions of sex. That's insane. It's all over the place. Kids don't need more sex. They need more heroes. Think about it. If you're trying to get your kids to read more, read more, and you think the way to do that is to get them to read books about sex, then you're competing with the sex that kids see on Instagram and TV and the internet. It is impossible. No book can beat the internet. (laughs) You're out of your mind. But that's not really what boys want. I mean, it's no more than they want it like they need, like they want sugar. But is it what they need? And really deep down is not what they want either. Boys are thirsting to read about heroes. Boys dream of slaying the dragon, rescuing the princess, saving the day. This is what it's all about. We've talked before about the book Knights in Training. Uh, awesome book. I have a, uh, I have a podcast on the side. It's called Christian parenting. Please check it out on iTunes. Uh, the second interview we did was with Heather, the author of nights in training. And it's about how to teach your boys the, the true code of chivalry, right? The, the, the night's code. So there was a, an epic poem written about the year a thousand called the song of Roland. And it's about the knights of the dark ages and the battles they fought in it. And it describes Charlemagne's code of chivalry. And it's entirely the opposite of today's code of conduct. So just a couple aspects of, of the code of chivalry, and then we'll bring it back around to get this. Um, so one aspect, if you want to become a knight, which all boys want to be, if you want to become a knight, then you need to serve the liege lord in valor and faith. That's mom and dad. You need to obey those placed in authority. That's the teacher. If you want to be a knight, you need to protect the weak and defenseless. That's the, uh, the new kid in class who comes in and has no friends. And you sit with them during lunch. If you want to be a, coat, you, uh, a uh, knight, you never refuse a challenge from an equal. And you never turn your back upon a foe. You don't be a coward. You speak the truth at all times. You persevere to the end. Oh, one of my favorites is you, um, you always turn down a monetary reward. No, it wasn't even turned down. You hate, you hate monetary rewards. You're not in it for the money. You're in it for the honor. And the one that applies to this is you respect the honor of women. 
you respect the honor of women. So please go to iTunes and search for Christian Parenting and, and you'll see the, this episode and we break down each of these. And in her book, she takes each of these values. It's at the, at the end of the book, she takes each one of these values and offers about five to 10 books and stories that represent each value. It's an incredible resource. It's gold. I put a link to it on our Twitter. Let me make sure it's still there. Um, I've, I've quoted to it so many times. Okay. Yeah. So I did two days ago. Um, I said, I know I keep linking to this book, but it came up again. If you have boys and want them to understand true chivalry click that link right there. Um, so we talk on the podcast. I say, so what do you mean? Speak the truth at all times. And we break it down. And then in their book, she like, here are five or 10 different books you can get that you can read with your sons about speaking the truth at all times. So one of the values is protecting the weak and defenseless. Here's five to 10 books about protecting the weak and defenseless. We want to teach our boys to respect the honor of women. Here's five to 10 books about respecting the honor of women. None of, none of these are about sex. Gosh, it annoys the heck out of me. Oh, actually, let me pull this up here. Um, how did I say that? Because there's a quote in the book uh, that I can pull up here. It's the beginning of chapter four. I know exactly where it is. Don't fail me now, internet. Okay, I'm going to do this, and then we're going to go right here. At 10 seconds. Count to 10. We got it. Boom, 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 boom. You don't even need 10. Don't even need 10. Here it is. C.S. Lewis. Since it is so likely that children will meet cruel enemies, let them at least have heard of brave knights and heroic courage. C.S. Lewis, it's awesome. Since it's so likely that children will meet cruel enemies, let them at least have heard of brave knights and heroic courage. How many kids today haven't even heard of it? They don't even know what it is. What, what is, what are brave knights? What does that look like? What is heroic courage? I don't even know. And we expect it. So then this knucklehead at, at the New York Times says, Rob, read your kids books about sex. <sighs> That'll get them interested in, 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 uh, in reading. Come on. Some of the comments to this New York Times article were uh, in agreement, which is crazy, but, uh, I truly, I can't even, I can't even grasp that argument. I get maybe back in the seventies, I could grasp that argument, but in today's age, that, that argument is so wrong. <laughs> I don't, like if I, if I, I feel like if I talk to this guy, I would love to talk to him and be like, dude, what are you talking about? You're out of your mind. That is, is that is not what our boys need more of. Anyway, here's one comment that. The guy disagrees with the author. He says, what a horrible suggestion. There will be plenty of time to think about sex. Why do you want them to indulge in fantasies they may not fully appreciate how to physically and emotionally handle? You want teenage boys to read? Give them parents that read. A father and mother who lead by example. Read books. Discuss around the dinner table or in the car on the road to soccer practice. You know, we talk a lot in the show about colleges poorly preparing kids for the real world. And that's a good example of it. We have a culture, the New York times arguing to give young boys more books about sex. I mean, this is what I mean by going off course, but you want to know the good news. They, no one 
controls what you do in your home. 1-888-933-93. Uh, that book again, Nights in Training, and my podcast called Christian Parenting. Go on iTunes, search that, and she's the second episode. Um, and if you have young boys, must read and must listen to Mike Slater Show, the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. This is Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. On the Blaze Radio Network. Slater Crusaders want to quote uh, Ryan here. He says, Slater loved the book. He's talking about a book called How to Change Someone's Mind. Available now on Amazon.com. Also, audiobook also available on Amazon.com. Ebook, paperback, audiobook, Amazon.com. How to Change Someone's Mind. Uh, after a decade of debating people on Facebook and in person, I could not agree with you more. I used to try and eviscerate people in political debates, partly because of my personality, very competitive. And partly because of how I was raised. My extremely conservative parents both framed the other side as the ignorant adversary who is to be beaten at all costs. I remember being so hopped up during the 08 election, which was Facebook's big coming out as an unfortunate political debate platform. I would just post articles from all these websites that had the most brazen headlines and just sit back and wait. Comments would flood in from my liberal college friends and would quickly devolve into name calling and mudslinging. At the end, we would each wonder how we were ever friends to begin with. And we'd feel terrible about the things we'd said. It got nowhere. It was super stressful. But since the 2012 election, I started taking a different approach. Not only because I was just tired and always felt horrible after the other approach, but because I saw I was actually looking quite ignorant when I started really researching both sides of issues. I was so fueled by the fear-mongering of the airways that I just blindly accepted whatever was hitting my ears and never bothered to really research past must I in order to give can I a chance. I think that's chapter six in the book. Needless to say, I found what I now know to be your approach much, much nicer and found it interesting that I started getting compliments from my liberal friends of how fair and reasonable I had become. I'd get comments like, you're now my favorite Republican or you are my favorite Republican, and, and this was so refreshing. I want to be clear here, and, and Ryan will attest to this. This does not mean changing your opinion. I want to be so clear. Like I, I feel like there's this reaction, initial reaction of, well, I don't want to be weak or a rhino, or, or I don't want to be, you know, I don't want to go soft. No, 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 no. It doesn't mean changing your opinion. It's how you share your opinion. It's not changing your opinion. It's changing how you share it. It's all about the delivery, which is really all about your heart, which is what the other person can read in an instant. And if they read your heart as confrontational, they will respond accordingly and they will build up their defense wall and they will never listen to anything you have to say. So it's all about having the right heart, which is what we talk about which will be reflected in your tone and body language, which will then be interpreted by the other person in such a way that they will not build their wall up. 
but take their wall down. And they will share their opinion and then you, they will leave themselves open for you to share yours. It's a, it's, it's the only way. Yeah, people and my editors, you know, don't say the only, uh, in my experience, it's the only way. <laughs> That's, I just, I didn't say only way, but for me, to you right now, talking, it's the only way. It's the only way I've ever seen it done. Again, how to change someone's mind. You can buy it. It's a couple bucks. Um, this is why I bring this email up, though. He said, uh, also increasingly, my posts that were more neutral and factual got way, way less engagement than my than the inflammatory posts. It was a little microcosm of cable news. And then I understood why they do what they do. Such a good point. I, I got, uh, I get frustrated at this. I try to present some some thoughtful, important stuff and, and, and insight and, and try to present it as logically and rationally as possible in a nice presentation. And I'll get 5,000 views on Facebook. And someone else just throws out red meat and gets 5 million views. <laughs> I'm just like, what? And, and so yesterday, you know, or two days ago, the Taylor Swift video came out, the new Taylor Swift song. And have you seen these where they're, they're called reaction videos? So these are videos that people post where it's a video of them watching Taylor Swift's song for the first time or watching anything for the first time. And the videos of them and their reaction to it. And that gets millions of views. I'm like, what the heck is this garbage? Who wants to watch someone else? I don't, I don't get that at all. So I, like, I get it. But the, the reason why cable news does what they do, it's the same reason that there's a TV show called Dating Naked. <laughs> you just got you just got to keep upping the ante. And it's super frustrating when Dating Naked gets, you know, higher ratings than, you know, whatever, you know, what is something good. It's like, oh, like what in? His point is you just don't give up. I got 40 seconds. Last point here. Um, he said that when he says, uh, you know, an ancient proverb says people are super receptive. But when he says, uh, you know, uh, uh, Jesus said, or in Proverbs, it says people are like, whoa, 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 whoa. But isn't that interesting? Like if someone says, uh, you know, Confucius said, everyone's like, oh, wow, that's and no one doubts it, even though the first writings of Confucius were written 400 years after he died. But when someone says, you know, Jesus said, whoa, 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 I don't believe in that fairy tale stuff. But you believe Confucius, no problem? Anyway, got me an interesting point. Uh, Cider Crusaders, hope you have a great rest of your weekend. Theblaze.com slash radio. You can check out the uh, entire show here on Slater Radio and Twitter. Mike Slater, so The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network.